Yehuda Geber with another podcast of Jewish History Soundbites. Um, today we'll talk a little bit about a very interesting story of the Ridbaz, Rabbi Yankiv David Vilovsky, who later changed his name to Ridbaz, actually. Um, Yaakov David Ben Zev, which was his father's name, um, but he was born Vilovsky. And his interesting, fascinating stint as a rabbi in the United States and the influence that he tried to have on Jewish life in this country at the turn of the century. And Rabbi Yankov Davidovilovsky was a very old-school rabbi in Lithuania. He was a rav in several Litvish cities, most famously, was his last position in Lithuania in, in, in Russia, in Slutsk. And he wrote a very, very important uh, Pirish on Talmud Yerushalmi. He actually devoted a large portion of his life to it. He was a very outspoken rabbi. He wrote, also like I said, old old school a bit. He was very outspoken against the new Derech Halimud that was coming out of Velazhin, the new style of learning of Reb Chaim Brisker. He very much promoted the old way of learning, which is a topic for another time. In his later years, when he lived in Eretz Yisrael, he got into a dispute with Rav Cook about whether to sell the land of Israel during Shemitah, the farmland, the Heter Mechira, in 1909, the Shemitah year. He, he, he was an outspoken individual, a very dynamic individual, a very strong-minded, and uh, that had what to do with his position in America as well. In, when he was a rabbi in Slutsk, he asked the internal Slutsk politics, we're not going to get into that now, but he wanted um, to start a yeshiva, and he asked the Alter Slobodka for his help. The Alter Slobodka was always someone who tried to spread Torah, to try to open new yeshivas, and he sent 14 of his top students from the Slobodka yeshiva to Slutsk, together with one of his own Russia yeshiva in Slobodka, Rebister Zalman Meltzer, who was the Rosh Hashiva in Slabatka at the time, together with his brother-in-law, Rabbi Meisha Mordechai Epstein, and Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, together with 14 of the top students of Slabatka, go to Slutsk to found a branch of the Slabatka Yeshiva. The altar actually helped with the funding of the Yeshiva for a period of time. The altar of Slabatka visited the Yeshiva in the early years from time to time. It was actually a branch of Slabatka for quite a while, until it became independent later on. And these 14 students were so famous because they were 14 top students and they built the Slabatki Yeshiva. And since there were 14 of them, people nicknamed them the Yad HaChazaka, like the Rambam's famous uh, work on Torah Shabal Peh, on Halacha, on the Oral Law. The 14 Sfarim of Mishnah Torah, the Rambam himself called them the Yad HaChazaka, the strong arm. So these 14 students were also the Yad HaChazaka. And from those 14, quite a few famous people came out of it. Um, Reb Ruven Katz, who was the, later the Rav of Petach Tikva, and was involved in the Lamji Yeshiva there, of Pesach Pruskin, who was Rashiv in Kubrin, Reb Yosef Kanovich, who later himself married the daughter of the Ridbaz, became his son-in-law and moved to America afterwards. Um, and a famous rabbi in Vilna, Reb Yitzchak Rubinstein, who was one of the leaders of the Mizrahi, who was a member of the Polish parliament. There was a famous dispute that he had with Reb Chaim Moizer-Grzynski in Vilna, which is also a topic for another time. Actually, the father of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, Reb Alter Shmulevitz, who was a son-in-law of the Alter of Navardic, um, 
who was later a Shivan Grudn, he was a Rav in Stuchin. He was one of the 14 original ones, Rav Leibel Plachinsky, Shmulei Plachinsky, who was later the son-in-law of the altar of Slobodka himself, um, uh, was one of the 14 original uh, Talmidim of this yeshiva. There was quite a few famous celebrities who were part of the nucleus that started this yeshiva, which the Ridbaz oversaw um, in, when he was still in Slutsk. He later on, he goes to America really to fundraise for the writing of his Pirish of Yerushalmi. He, that was his dream, to write this Pirish on Yerushalmi, to publish it in his lifetime and to not lose money off of it. And he goes to America to fundraise. And they, the American Jewish community prevails on him and convinces him and sits down with him and begs him literally to, to, um, to stay in America and become the Rav. And most of what we know about this Sega, this tragic Sega, is, is what he himself writes. So again, you're getting it from his point of view. It might not be the most objective testimony out there. But on the other hand, it's not uh, um, some sort of conject, conjecture of what happened. It's actually something that he describes himself. Now, usually when we talk about the Ridbaz, we're going to his kever. He's buried in Tzfas. In his later years, in 1905, he moves to Tzfas, where he lives until he dies in 1913. He's buried in the old cemetery, not far from the Arizal, the Ariya Kaddish. We talk about the Ritbaz on our tours of Kivrit Tzadikim and Eretz Yisrael. Recently, I was there with a family. And, you know, we, we, it's, we just bump into the cavern like, hey, the Ritbaz from Slutsk, from Chicago, from America. And he's out here in Svas in this picturesque area with this beautiful scenery in the background. And we tell the story of his becoming the rabbi in Chicago. Once in a while, we get a group that, that is brave enough to go all the way out to Slutsk itself. In Belarus, it's far. It's hard to get to. But we try to make it out. We're there once or twice. And even though he's not buried there, but we get to tell the story of Slutsk as well. Haven't been yet to tours of Jewish Chicago, but maybe if we do, we'll get to tell the story at a third venue as well. So the, the, he, he writes a sefer, a Pirshan Chomish, called Nimuke Haridbaz. And over there, he has this like 12-page introduction where he literally goes through amazing detail. He does it in his Tshuva Sefer, Shailas of Tshuva's base Haridbaz. He also mentions it a few places about his, his really terrible experience as the rabbi in Chicago, where um, he was only the rabbi for 10 months. And he goes on to say there's plenty of people who are Yeres Shemaim, who are good Jews, who want to do well. But he blames the problems, and he repeatedly says, this country or this city. He only mentions the United States once, and he doesn't mention the city of Chicago at all, but he does mention it in other places, and we know that's where he was the rabbi. And he really, if we want to summarize it, he boils it down to five problems that he encountered. And we'll go through them one by one. He says, there's no education. Everyone, when they have children here, they send them to public school. He says public school means a few things. Number one, it means that they're going with non-Jews, the influence of the non-Jewish American culture. Number two, it's boys and girls, and they're hanging out together. Younger age, nunu, once they get older, they keep on hanging out together. And number three, they don't get any Jewish education. He says, so what do people do? They hire afternoon teachers for their kids. He said, no one's interested in studying in the afternoon after a long day in school, 
all their non-Jewish friends are out by, outside playing. Who's going to want to study then? Who's going to want to learn then? He says these kids, when they're 13, 14, they barely know how to read Hebrew. They definitely don't know anything beyond that. And it's a tragic situation that there's no education. He says the first thing we have to do is invest in education. We have to create a framework for Jewish education. And that's the theme that he comes back to again and again, and we'll get back to it as well later on. He also says there's no way to keep Shabbos. People feel like they, have, they can't have a job if they don't keep Shabbos, which is quite a famous feature of American Jewish life. He says people are being Nechal Shabbos. And he says, I can divide those two types into two groups, groupings of people. Some, he says, they just give it all up. They say, yeah, we can't do it. Let's leave that old world behind. We're not keeping Shabbos. So there's other people who they try and they make an attempt to and they feel like it's impossible and they cry about it and it hurts them and it bothers them. But at the end of the day, they're not keeping Shabbos. And they feel like they can because they won't have a job. They won't be able to sustain their family. And they have to get ahead in life. He says, and this is the main theme of his essay about American Jewish life at the time, is that there's no kashrus. He says, in Europe, we very often gave smicha, and he says, I myself am guilty of this crime. He says, many rabbis gave smicha to aspiring young people who, to give them chizik, they showed signs of promise, it would push them along, it would give them an incentive to study more. You'd give them smicha, even though they didn't really know the material, even though they didn't have, really study Yeridea, they didn't know the halach yet, we'd still give them smicha. He said, but now... These people are dishonest. They take these smichas and they come to the American melting pot. And he says, America doesn't have Rabbanim. America doesn't have leaders. And America doesn't have established Jewish communities. He goes on to describe other problems in America. They don't have small towns where there's easy ways to control the communal life and to monitor it. He says, everyone here lives in big, huge cities. They come from all over the world. They don't come from one country. They don't come just from Poland or just from Lithuania. They come from Russia and Hungary and Western Europe and other places. It's a big conglomerate of Jews from all over the world, from different backgrounds and different customs. And any guy who gets up and he says, with a beard, and he says, I have smicha, I'm a rabbi, listen to me. And he starts monitoring kashras. And he goes on to describe these horrifying stories about sheikhtim who are crooks and butchers who are crooks and people who don't have Yerush Shemayim, and these so-called rabbis, and they band together, and they take over the slaughterhouses, they take over the places, and it's just to make money, and everyone's paying off the other guy. And he literally goes through the details of what's going on in seemingly his experience in the Chicago slaughterhouses under these, under these uh, um, really um, imposter rabbis, sometimes imposter sheikhtim, he points out, people who are not that good shaykhtim. He talks about a shaykhit who was working for this mafia of a slaughterhouse and, and, uh, and he was forced to shech thousands of chickens and flick off their feathers and check them and make sure they're kosher. All on one like uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, Friday afternoon shift. He said by the time he came home, and he actually describes this in the introduction to his book, he came home, he was not able to lift his spoon from his soup bowl to eat his soup. He says if he can't lift his spoon, then we can just imagine what his shechita looked like a couple of hours before. So he said, obviously it's all novelas, it's all trefas, there's no hechsher, there's no, there's no ashgacha, everyone's eating treif, no one cares, no one's doing anything about it. 
He says there's no leadership. Does anyone comes to this country and does what they want? Because there's all big cities with people coming from all different backgrounds. You can't check into anything. You don't know where people are coming from. He says to make things worse, anyone can open a printing press and then print pamphlets and newspapers where they make late sonnets of rabbis, where they call us old school to anyone who tries to control the kashras, anyone who tries to maintain any sort of traditional Jewish life to keep the minimum standards of kashras, to keep minimum rabbinical supervision in places. And they just destroy everything with the printed word because anyone can get up and say, and he, he seems to long for the days where there was czarist censorship and you had to get a license to open a printing shop. But he says, America is a free country. Anyone can do what they want, which is an interesting perspective that he has, is that he blames American freedom for the problem of Jewish life. And then he writes, he says, they wanted me to stay and be a rav. And I felt bad. You know, I thought that it has potential. I'd build a big yeshiva. I'd have Talmidim. I'd bring in Rebbeim from Europe. That was my plans. I had dreams of publishing Yerushalmi and retiring to Eretz Yisrael. That was my dream, to do two things, to publish my Pirish on the Yerushalmi and to move to Eretz Yisrael. And I gave up those two dreams. I was willing, actually. He didn't give them up. He eventually published the Yerushalmi and he eventually moved to Eretz Yisrael. But he says, I was willing to give up those two dreams to become the Rav here in Chicago and to help build American Jewish life. The first problem was is that I ta- tackled Kashrus first. I failed. That's what he writes. I was a failure. I was not able to, to tackle the Kashrus problem, and I got stuck there. He says I had, there was this terrible rabbi, who he doesn't mention by name, who worked in cahoots with the slaughterhouses. He says I was able to Kashra three slaughterhouses, but not more than that. I wasn't able to get a handle on the Kashrus situation, and they were out to destroy me, and they were out to stop me. These imposters, these people who who were just out for their money, and they're willing to serve non-kosher food to the Jews of Chicago just to keep their positions, and they didn't let me do anything and accomplish anything in the field of kashras. He says, he says, what about education? He says, you know, you have to send your kids to public school? He says, okay, but legally, he says, I checked into the law, legally you're allowed to set up religious schools. He says, how do I know? Because Christian immigrants from Poland... They set up religious schools next to their churches. And then he writes a very, very sharp statement. He said, we're not even as good as the Christians. We're worse than the Catholics. They set up religious schools next to their churches so that they should not forget their own religion. And we can't set up religious schools for our children so that they won't forget their children. On his way out of America, he gives this fiery lecture in New York. He's after only two years in America. For about 10 months, he was the rabbi in Chicago. The rest of the time, he's traveling around, trying to raise money for his Pirish on the Yerushalmi, giving lectures and speeches and fiery speeches in all different cities across America. And before he leaves, he's in New York on the Lower East Side, and he gives a fiery, fiery speech. And he says, I'm leaving you off with a warning, Jews of America. If you do not invest in education, then there will be no Judaism to speak of soon in America. And that's the warning I leave you with. Do something for Jewish future, for Jewish education. One of the people, and before I get to that, he leaves. He leaves with that warning. And he moves to Tzvas, sets up a yeshiva there, an interesting yeshiva to learn the Torah of the Vilna Gain. And he, like I said, he gets into a dispute about Shemitah. He dies in 1913. He's buried in Tzvas. 
One of the people listening to that speech in the Lower East Side that day was a Jew named Reb Shmuel Yitzchak Andron. And he decides to act. And he says, he comes home and he says, the Ridbaz, the Slutskarov, spoke today in the shul, and we have to do something about Jewish education. I'm leaving my job. And he leaves his job. And his family has no way to support himself. The, a couple of years earlier, the one and only chief rabbi of New York City, who died young also because he failed uh, to fight the Kashrus Mafia in New York City. Similar story, Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef, who was a Talmud of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in the Noviazer Kloys in Kovna. He was a Maggid in Vilna, a very, very famous Rav, and he was a Rav in New York City. And Rabbi Shmuel Yitzchak Andrin was close friends with him. He decides to name the yeshiva that he's founding after him, and he starts RJJ, Rabbeinu Jacob Joseph, one of the first yeshivas in America, and that is founded on the inspiration of the Ridbaz's speech. And here's where we see how American Jewish education has this incredible godly assistance, this Hashgacha Pratis, that Hashem's smile is out there taking care of American Jewish education, even in a place like America, even after the despair of the Ridbaz. Listen to this. The Ridbaz, when he was still Rav in Slutsk, wanted to start a yeshiva. And he has the Slutsk yeshiva start with the Yara Chazaka, with Rabbi Zalman Meltzer. And that yeshiva remains in Slutsk. The Ridbaz, before he leaves America, warns them that they have to invest in Jewish education. Rabbi Shmuel Yitzchak Andron starts RJJ, which becomes one of the premier yeshivas in America during the first half of the 20th century. But let's follow the yeshiva in Slutsk for a little while, and then we'll cut back to New York. The Slutsk yeshiva, after the communist, the Bolshevik revolution, had to cross the border. And in 1925, they jumped the border into Poland, leaving communist Russia, and they come to a town called Kletsk. And they refound the Slutsk yeshiva in Kletsk. One of the one of the stars of the Slabatki yeshiva was Rabaran Cutler. So much so that the altar of Slabatka recommended to Rabbi Zalman Meltzer that he take this Ilui, this the best boy in the yeshiva for himself as a son-in-law, and he takes Rabaran Cutler as a son-in-law to Slutsk. And Aaron Cutler becomes a Rebbe in Slutsk. And when the yeshiva moves from Slutsk to Kletsk, Rebbe Sezalman Meltzer retires, moves to Israel, which is a story in itself. And the one who takes over the Slutsk, now Kletsk yeshiva, is Aaron Cutler. Less than 20 years later, about 15 years later, World War II begins. They run to Vilna. The Kletsk yeshiva ends up in Salok. They have no way out. They split up into a couple of different shtetls. Rabbi Cutler himself eventually has to escape to be able to help his students from the outside. He comes to America in April of 1941, where he becomes the head of the Varad Sala, which is a story in itself. But he also founds a new yeshiva on the ashes of the Slutsk yeshiva, which gets lost, which gets mostly gets wiped out. A few survivors manage to make it to America afterwards. And he starts... The base Medjushkevay Yeshiva, first in White Plains, together with the Nassan Vachtfeigel. By the way, Nassan Vachtfeigel's father was one of the Yara Chazako, was one of the 14 original Talmidim in Slutsk. And eventually they moved to Lakewood. So the original Slutsk Yeshiva comes to Kletsk, comes to Lakewood from the Ridbaz. 
And in the early years of that yeshiva, one of the feeders, one of the main feeders into Lakewood was one of the only American yeshivas at the time, along with Tyre Vadas and a couple of other yeshivas, was also RJJ, the other yeshiva founded with the Ridbaz's inspiration. So it all comes together in the end. And that's the story of the Ridbaz in America. This was Yehudi Geberer. And when we do tours together to see these amazing places, to hear about these amazing people, you can email me, ygebss at gmail.com. You could subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give us a five-star rating and share it with your friends and family. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. We hope you enjoy.